Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Lots of fun, smallish stories today. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm actually glad we have this period at the beginning of the show where we can go through some of these, these issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not joke stories. They're serious stories. Mm-hmm. But a couple of them uh, I, I want to start off with, uh, I think, are particularly serious. Ghislaine Maxwell, who in December was convicted on five of six felony counts, the most serious of which was human trafficking uh, in minors. Her attorneys have filed um, paperwork in advance of her formal sentencing. We don't know yet what she's going to get. We do know that the sentencing guidelines call for 20 years in prison. She's been in prison two years now this month. She'll get credit for those two years. Uh, But her attorneys are saying that she shouldn't have more than six years because one of her cellmates has told other prisoners on three separate occasions that she's been offered a large sum of money to murder Ghislaine Maxwell in her sleep. She's going to strangle her in her sleep. So they've transferred this other prisoner into another unit in the uh, in the prison. This is in MCC Brooklyn, the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Brooklyn. This is a nasty, dangerous, maximum security prison. Uh, but usually it's not for prisoners who are there for long term. You're just awaiting sentencing. Yeah. So, um, you know, they, they did an investigation. The Bureau of Prisons did an investigation and said that this is a legitimate threat, that there really is a threat to murder Ghislaine Maxwell. It could be for street cred. It could be for the actual money. This other prisoner apparently told other people that the money was so much that she was offered, and she didn't say by whom, that it would be worth an extra 20 years in prison because her family would be taken care of in perpetuity. Yeah, so this is kind of a big deal. It is still astonishing to me that the only person to go down for the crimes, not only of Jeffrey Epstein, but probably of uh, lots of people in his orbit is Ghislaine Maxwell. I mean, good, but But it is remarkable to think that we are just going to walk away. We're just all going to walk away from that. Knowing, knowing that this again, uh, you know, convicted sex offender, right. Who was going to face charges uh, like the ones that Ghislaine Maxwell faced on, uh, you know, grooming, child sex abuse, yes. child uh, sex trafficking, whatever, knowing that his estate has paid out, I think, at least 150 claims yes. uh, against women, right. you know, uh, and has presumably denied quite a few as well. Just knowing knowing that these crimes were going on for such a long time in such great volume mm-hmm. and that a lot of the wealthiest and most powerful people in this country undoubtedly knew about them. At a minimum, mm-hmm. and, and we're all just going to go. Them. Oh well, guess he died too yeah. late. Yeah, we'll put Glenn Maxwell over. away for a little while. But you know, we're not hearing anything about Prince, An- Prince Andrew. We're not. Uh, hearing- I did see a headline that he like wasn't. He didn't attend some royal ceremony. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, and he, his mother stripped him of one of his titles. Yeah. Uh, we're not hearing anything about Alan Dershowitz, who's adamant that he kept his underwear on when a, a child gave him a massage. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this is this is ongoing. Yeah. I, I just hope that the prosecutors do what they're what they're trained to do. Another interesting story that 
I, I guess, has flown beneath the radar. We told our listeners many months ago that John Hinckley, who shot President uh, uh, Reagan and several other people, a D.C. policeman, uh, the presidential uh, press secretary, James Brady, a Secret Service uh, agent, uh, John Hinckley has been formally released from any governmental oversight, right? He did his time. Everybody else is either dead or they've moved on. And John Hinckley put an ad on Craigslist in Williamsburg, Virginia, where he lives uh, with his mother. Uh, he put an ad for a bass player mm -hmm. because he's a guitarist and he wants to get a band together. Well, it turned out somebody responded to the ad and they put this band together and he was booked for a concert in Brooklyn, New York that was sold out. And the venue announced today that the concert will be canceled because there have been threats to the venue and threats against Hinkley and we're in a very politically charged time and maybe it wasn't a very good idea to have a presidential assassin uh, play a gig with Wanna his... Wannabe assassin. Yeah. But, you know, it was... Who was insane? Who was insane? Clearly insane. Yeah, yeah. He was clearly insane. So, canceled. Yeah. It's, he, I, I genuinely... <laughs> don't know how to feel about I mean he did like he did hurt a lot of people oh yeah he was I think James uh, Brady never recovered from that yeah wound. no he he seriously wounded a lot of people uh but yeah I think he was also absolutely insane at the time right oh yes he did his time in a in a mental institution yes but yeah should he not be allowed to get up and play in public I mean I guess all the other answer is you don't you know you don't get to do everything you want to do in life sometimes <laughs> there are consequences beyond right. Serving your time, but and yeah. apparently he can I be. I seen... imagine that that would be dangerous. Yeah, I, I no, it's not dangerous. Who even knows who this guy? I mean, I people obviously know who he is because they right. want to come to the show. But sure. like, is this what some like Reagan defender is going to want to get revenge on Tinkley for not like, murdering does the president? Care yeah, anymore? Yeah, I, don't I guess know. so. Um, apparently he can be he can be found at the local Barnes and Noble, uh, reading the paper and drinking a cup of coffee every day. If you want to introduce yourself to John Hinckley. So he's down there in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. Uh, there was another thing, too, that struck me. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who we love to hate, uh, gave an interview on Newsmax yesterday in which she talked about what is becoming a national tampon shortage. Right. This is another part Honestly. of the of the disruption of the supply chain. And apparently tampons are now more difficult to find than they normally would be. Well, she says that the reason that there is a tampon shortage is because Joe Biden has given all the tampons uh, uh, to, or he's moved all the tampons to men's rooms so trans men can use them. And there aren't any tampons left for women. There aren't any words for how <laughs> stupid that is. Yes. Also, she it's also, not like they're in Fort Knox. The yeah, men's bathroom right. is not like, you know, lock, lock and key. key. Yeah, no one could get at it. She uh. also said that her rights have been fragrantly violated. Uh, because she can't get as many tampons as she wants? Fragrantly oh, violated. No. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's so stupid. <laughs> there are lots of alternatives to tampons, by the way. You know, period underwear is great. I never heard of that, but I'm glad to hear that there are alternatives. I've been watching this show. Uh, uh, from Norway. It's in Norwegian, so you have to read the subtitles. And it's about this uh, this sort of vortex where people like, come out of it and they've just arrived in 
you know, in Oslo in 2022. So it's and like the, quantum leap, yeah, but in Norway? It, it was the 1400s that they came out of, okay. so they're dressed as Vikings and such. And um, there's one woman who came out of the 1400s and became a detective in modern-day Oslo, and she just can't get used to this whole tampon and maxi pad thing, so she uses moss that she picks up from the forest floor, and she says it worked for hundreds of years, so sure. that's what she says. moss. Moss is your friend. Yeah. Well, yeah. We won't have to get into it, but <laughs> there are lots of alternatives. Um, Three-quarters of a percentage point rate hike yesterday. Yeah, that Biggest was... Biggest rate, rate hike since... 1994. I think by the by the time yesterday rolled around, I think uh, more people were betting on it being a 0.75 point hike yes. uh, than a half a point hike. And uh, the front page of the Wall Street Journal right now is telling us the Dow has dropped, uh, you know, a, yeah. a, a nice even 750, 750 points to, to make points. it bookend a little yeah. bit there. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it's a rate hike. Uh, all the predictable things are going to happen. Uh, the the headlines are that this shows the Fed is taking inflation seriously. We'll see. Oh, there's also a headline that mortgage rates are at the highest level since 2008. Yeah, I saw an interview last night on CNN saying exactly what you've just said, yeah. that we should expect to see all the things that we normally would expect to see with a big rate hike. Right. Uh, mortgages are going to go up. Uh, credit card uh, interest rates are going to go up. People Can't are going to tighten their belts. Can't wait for my savings account to hit that sweet 1%. It's been a long time since we've seen 1% on savings accounts. I will say I'll be, uh, you know, it is nice that they pretty quickly follow these rate hikes with emails to me saying, congratulations, Michelle, we've got good news for you. You are now earning several, several cents more a year. (laughs) I got 40 cents last year. I got a, what is that? A 1099, 1099B or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, I got 40 cents in interest on my checking account. Oh, you better declare that, John. It's going to come after you. Um, there's some more news that, I, you know, I think is pretty serious news. We'll see where they go with it. But the EPA yesterday warned that a group of human-made chemicals found in drinking water, cosmetics, and food packaging used by millions of Americans pose a greater danger to human health than regulators had previously understood. They're talking about these compounds that are known as polyfluoroalkyl or perfluoroalkyl substances, or called PFAS. And they are linked to infertility. They're linked to thyroid problems. They're linked to several kinds of cancer, including kidney cancer and testicular cancer. And they get called forever chemicals because they linger in the environment for a very long time without breaking down. So the new guidance that the EPA issued lowers the level that it considers safe to drink to near zero, right? A lifetime exposure at the levels of 0.004 and 0.02 parts per trillion of these kinds of chemicals to particular kinds of chemicals can compromise compromise your heart, compromise your immune system, and are linked to decreased birth weights. So these levels, safe levels have been reduced from the levels the Obama administration issued in 2016, which were, again, this is a recommended but unenforceable limit of 70 parts per trillion. So we already had a 70 parts per trillion recommended limit that there, you know, there was no enforcement action on. Now that has dropped to a fraction. And what the administration says is that this interim guidance is intended to prompt local officials to install water filters or at least notify residents of contamination. But that's I mean, right. They're intended to push 
landlords yeah. to do something, but they definitely do not have to. Good luck with that. Does not feel like much there. This is, however, to be fair, this is interim guidance. And in the fall, the administration is going to propose a new mandatory standard for these chemicals. And these standards, if accepted, would carry penalties for companies that violate them. The administration has also noted that it's giving a billion dollars in grants to states and tribes through the infrastructure bill that passed earlier this year to deal with drinking water contamination. Nice that billion, a billion for Ukraine and a billion for the entire country to try to clean up its drinking water. Mm. The contamination also is widespread. If you want to see a really scary map, you can look up the EPA's new PFAS contamination map that shows nearly 3,000 sites in 50 states and two territories that they consider contaminated. And these sites are, unluckily for you and me, John, really concentrated along the East Coast uh, with another concentration in in California and in Colorado. Did you happen to, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, along these same lines, um, microplastics we talked about mm-hmm. a few weeks ago have been found in Antarctic ice and in the flesh of Antarctic penguins. They're in us. They're in They're us. They're in us. Yes. We're, we're riddled with these plastics. And now we've been sort of throwing these chemicals into the environment without really having a sense of how long they'll stay there and what they will do. Mm-hmm. We talked uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago about a farm in Maine. Right. These yes. people that bought a farm in Maine and uh, had to stop working it because they were warned that it had been contaminated by manure, I think, that was that was offered and spread by the state. You know, Crazy. so people just one haven't really known about this and also just haven't really wanted to regulate it. It's also interesting to contemplate this uh, funding for making these changes right now through the infrastructure bill in light of a Politico story that came out last month about how grant programs through FEMA have for years favored wealthy and white areas, right? The, they looked into yes. a program that was intended to help people in flood areas raise their homes and found that the money just really disproportionately goes to wealthy people and not to poor neighborhoods that probably need it and can't afford it on their own. Part of the reason for this is that the money goes to people who own their homes, right? right? So you're already at a certain wealth threshold. That's right. And really, like, what landlord gives a damn about raising a property that you're just earning money? You know what I mean? Like, why? Why not just let eventually let the flood wash it away, take the insurance money? Who cares what happens to the people inside? Mm -hmm. And so these programs, you know, have been set up with bias and administered with bias. And it would be good to check that before yes. we end up with yet another situation where some people in this country can afford to live in relatively uncontaminated environments and others cannot. Just awful. Yeah. Just awful. Well, we have a lot coming up. We have some great guests today. We have Jim Jatris. We have uh, Maria Luisa Mendoza. We have Dr. Avi Loeb, who's going to talk about space and the always excellent KJ No. So stay tuned. We're live in D.C. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll be back after a short break. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. 
Two American citizens who are fighting in Ukraine have dropped out of touch with their families and are presumed to have been captured by Russian forces. Alexander Druki, an Army veteran, and Andy Hyun, a Marine Corps veteran, both from Alabama, went missing near Kharkiv a few days ago. Ukraine's ambassador in Germany has been pulling no punches in his promotion of his country's cause. The ambassador yesterday told a member of the German parliament to, quote, shut your leftist mouth, unquote. And he called German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, quote, an offended piece of liverwurst, unquote, for what the ambassador described as ties to Russia. Not sure what that is. Observers fear that the pro-Ukraine Western alliance is beginning to show some signs of strain. The United States, meanwhile, has said that it would send another $1 billion in military aid to Ukraine, and it encouraged its NATO allies to send additional aid. Germany said that it would send advanced rocket launchers to Ukraine, although they won't arrive until August. And federal agents have begun investigating how American computer chips made their way into Russian weapons recovered in Ukraine. Agents of the Commerce Department who enforce export controls are working with the FBI to determine whether U.S. technology companies made illegal sales to Russia that have been found in Russian radar systems, drones, ground control equipment, and littoral ships. We're joined by Jim Jatris. Jim's a former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. Welcome back, Jim. John, great to be back with you and Michelle. We always enjoy having you. Hey, let's start with these two American former servicemen that apparently have been captured in Kharkiv. This is going to be a problem for the Biden administration. The White House certainly never encouraged Americans to go to Ukraine to fight. But here we find ourselves. So in your experience, how does something like this work? Are these guys held as POWs or are they enemy combatants until the war is over? Are they put on trial? What do you expect to see? Well, to start with, it, 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 there's a difference between whether they're held by Russian forces or the forces of the Lugan oh, right. against republics. The latter have the death penalty on the books. Russia still does, but they've had a moratorium on it for over 20 years, as I understand. So I, I think that's one of the big determinants here. The other question is what their status is exactly. Um, you know, there's been some you know loose talk about the term mercenary. And of course, there is a specific provision in a 1997, excuse me, 1977 protocol to the Geneva Conventions that mercenaries are not considered prisoners of war or accorded the protections of the Geneva Conventions. Uh, a lot of that would depend on whether they receive um, compensation that's substantially above that provided to ordinary soldiers. I don't know if that's the, the case here or not. But what I think is going to be clear is that they will be considered by whoever holds them as illegal combatants. And, you know, John, this brings us back to our old friend from, uh, you know, uh, unlawful combatants from the, from the Bush era, yes, Afghanistan and Iraq and places like that, where we don't have to treat them as POWs. We can we can waterboard them, we can torture, we can do whatever we want to them. Which, even even by the way, under the under under the rules that don't apply to prisoners of war, you really can't do that with illegal combatants either. But of course, we did so. Right, that's a good point. That's a good point. We actually set the precedent here for the treatment of of enemy combatants. Yeah, and I really hope these guys are not treated that way. I mean, it, yeah. I, it, it, to me, I, I don't, from what I've seen in the, in the media, they don't seem to be so, so much of malicious as extremely naive. You know, yeah. you, you've mentioned the Biden administration has not been encouraging people to do this, at least not directly, but by spinning this tale of, you know, David and Goliath. Yes. Seeing human rights, blah, blah, blah. 
you can see how some idealistic, uh, you know, and maybe adventure-seeking uh, uh, veterans of the U.S. Armed Forces will say, yeah, I'm going to go fight for a good cause. Yes. Or joining the Flying Tigers or, or something like that. And uh, they really had no idea what they were walking into. I think you're exactly right. And just what was it? A week ago, we saw these two uh, Britons and uh, and a Moroccan who were grabbed by, um, well, I guess they're ethnic Russian uh, uh, forces in Donbass. Uh, they were very quickly put on trial and sentenced to death. Of course, those sentences haven't been carried out yet, and they very well may never be carried out. But this is something that I think people are going to have to start worrying about. You have to think very seriously before committing yourself to a foreign war that you really have no business fighting. And I, and I think, too, there's going to be a political calculation on the other side about what to do with these guys that they actually yeah. should. That would really send a strong message to people in Western countries, back off. You don't want to be involved in this. It would be a very a harsh and cynical way to proceed, but, you know, I wouldn't rule it out. I agree with you. Jim, the uh, Ukrainian ambassador to Germany has been been very vocal recently about what he believes to be Western foot dragging on aid to Ukraine, which I find fascinating. Um, I also find it to be <laughs> insane that there that he thinks there's been any foot dragging on you on Ukraine aid. But he's been decidedly undiplomatic in his language. He's been especially critical of Chancellor Olaf Scholz because of his supposed ties to Russia. What's this ambassador talking about? Scholz is in uh, Kiev today with uh, Mario Draghi, the Italian prime minister and and uh, French President Emmanuel Macron uh, to pledge support. What's he talking about? Closeness to Russia. Well, to start with, the ambassador should learn a couple of lessons about the, the comedy of diplomatic relations. That uh, you know, you're a guest in another country. You 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 really should watch the how moderate your language is when talking about the officials of the host government. And I, you know, I think that's really over the top. Uh, it, you know, as far as the foot dragging by the Germans, to tell the truth, John, I think there is some foot dragging. I think I think the Germans, and for for that matter, most of the Western countries are very big on their rhetorical support for the Ukrainians. But in terms of what they're actually providing, mm -hmm. it's it's really not much. I mean, the Germans talked about some of these so-called tanks that were not really tanks that they didn't have any, any ammunition for. I'm not even sure if even those were even delivered. And in any case, they won't do any good. Uh, and, and I think that's been the pattern with the Germans and some of the other European countries. The Americans and the British, I think, are a lot more serious about trying to provide them with some very serious weaponry. But uh, you know, as far as Draghi and Macron and Schultz being in, in uh, Kiev, uh, I, 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 I see the other side of this. I think they're actually trying to jawbone Zelensky and uh -huh. suing for peace while, you know, maintaining the public, you know, chest thumping that you know, we're going to support uh, Ukraine to the bitter end. And, and I think that's why there's probably some concern in Washington, the London, Baltic states, Warsaw, that uh, there is a real split now between the Western countries. There sure seems to be a split. Jim, last night I gave an interview to RT International in Moscow, and one of the things that they asked me nine ways from Sunday was about peace talks. Now, this is something that that you've discussed here on the show uh, over the last several weeks, uh, and the fact that there aren't any peace talks. But it seems to me like there are a lot of people on all sides of this issue who want to know when peace talks can can begin. Um, I think you make an important point here about these uh, these heads of state or or head of government in the in the case of uh, the Italian uh, being in Ukraine to maybe jawbone Zelensky 
and tell him you've got to sue for peace, even if it means having to to concede something that you believe is Ukrainian territory in the interest of of, you know, saving really the lives of of Ukrainians. Maybe you should start talking. Um, You know, he Zelensky gave a, a statement today. Uh, and I've got it right here in front of me, that Ukraine has been suffering painful losses in the Donbass. And he asked the West for more military support. Painful losses. We all predicted that this was going to happen. So is now not the time to talk about peace? It's been time for them to talk about peace almost as soon as— From the beginning. Yeah. It's pretty clear the way this was going to go. And uh, the fact that they're unwilling to do it, the fact that they are are just throwing— men and material down the rat hole in the Donbass, maybe in the hopes that they can score some kind of a signal victory. You know, there was, there was a rumor that, that they didn't want Azovstal and Mariupol to surrender till after Ukraine won the, Euro, won the Eurovision Song Contest. You know, they're, they're right. treating the lives of their soldiers as, as, as fodder for a propaganda war, not even for the fight of the war militarily on the ground. And to tell the truth, John, I'm not sure whether a decision for them to sue for peace at this point really will make that much difference. My sense is that is in Moscow, they already know what their political objectives are going to be. And if the Ukrainians do finally come to the table, yeah, they'll go through the motions, but the Russians ultimately will say, this is what we're going to have. We're going to dictate the term. Yeah. You can either accept them at the negotiating table or we'll achieve them militarily. It really doesn't make any difference that the end result will be the same. I think you're exactly right. Let's talk about this new $1 billion request from the uh, Biden administration for additional military aid. In the last congressional, congressional vote for aid for Ukraine, there were 50 Republicans that voted no in the House. That's not a huge number, but it's still pretty significant. Meanwhile, we don't have money for schools, roads, bridges, hospitals, other infrastructure. Is the Biden administration going to have a tougher time as they keep going back to the Hill to ask for more and more money for Ukraine? Do you expect those no votes to grow? A billion here and a billion there. Soon you're talking about real money, huh, John? Exactly. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> um, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I think this is more of a split within the Republican Party. I, I recall that the no votes against the Kosovo war on the Republican side were actually much more oh. we're seeing today. It seems to me that the neocon wing of the Republican Party is still very dominant in the Congress and certainly has almost total control over the leadership. What you're really seeing is sort of the, you know, the Trumpian populist wing. And that is not, you know, pro-Russian or anti-Ukraine by any means, but does want to put America first, so to speak. You know, look at all those other needs and why are we throwing money down a rat hole here without accountability, by the way. And that's the other, one of the other issues that some congressional Republicans have raised. I don't know. I, I think it really boils down to I, I think there's a natural uh, high watermark of how much of that kind of opposition we're going to see. I don't think we'll actually grow that much more than what we've already seen so far, unless there's a real disaster out there in Ukraine, which probably is, is shaping up now. Yeah. Jim, a Ukrainian general said yesterday that Ukraine will seek to bomb targets inside Russia. This came on the same day that President Zelensky said that Ukraine would not bomb targets inside Russia. Uh, The general also said that Ukrainian forces would soon try to destroy a bridge in Crimea uh, that has been used by Russian troops in the last couple of weeks. What should we take from these conflicting statements? There's got to be a message here, is there not? 
Well, you know, there have been some relatively small strikes by the Ukrainians across the board in Russia, yes. you know, over the past few weeks. Uh, I, I expect them to try to do those things again within their capabilities. Again, they're fighting a propaganda war more than military war. They're trying to say, look, see, we can hit the enemy on his own territory. What does that actually gain them in terms of how the war itself is going? Not a whole lot. Now, it, it, perhaps they're hoping that by doing so, the Russians will respond in some ways in anger, which would then cause the Russians to do something stupid that would then bring NATO in, which is really what the Ukrainians are looking for in terms of uh, you know some kind of a deus ex machina way to get mm-hmm. treated, that the only way they can win this war is to drag NATO indirectly into a war with Russia. So maybe they'll try that kind of provocation. Frankly, I don't think the Russians will take the bait. I think even if they were to strike uh, into Russian territory, do some serious, like destroy the Crimea Bridge or something, the Russians would respond not in peak, not in anger, but methodically, and, and as they continue to do throughout this war. Now, maybe when the war is over, that will also get to the next shoe to drop, which is who is responsible for that, and are they going to be held accountable? And I think that's one thing the Russians have high on the list when this is all over, that there will be war crimes trials, and uh, a lot of people are going to be, be be held accountable at that time. Wow. You know, I'll admit to you, I hadn't even considered the idea of war crimes trials. But there, there's going to be a victor in this thing, and it's going to be Russia for a whole bunch of, bunch of different reasons. NATO is not going to come to the to the aid in terms of manpower uh, will not come to the aid of, of Ukraine. This is not going to be a NATO versus Russia war. And, um, you know, I think that the Ukrainians eventually are going to run out of steam. We're already seeing it in Donbass. We've seen it in, in Crimea and uh, peace isn't going to be clear cut. I guess I'll say it won't be easy. It's going to be a messy piece. It's going to be a messy piece, I think, because we're talking about um, territory changing hands uh, and maybe a considerable amount of territory changing hands. I hadn't considered war crimes trials. What would something like that look like? Would those trials take place in in Russia? Would they take place in a in an international body? It would not be an international body. I think what's going to happen when this is all over, and frankly, I don't think it's going to be all that messy. I think we will see something uh. where, you know, essentially everything from Odessa to Kharkov and maybe more ends up becoming first independent of Ukraine and at some point probably incorporated into Russia, and that there will be a rump Ukrainian state, which right. is forced to be a demilitarized and neutral state under a pro-Russian government, maybe even a puppet government. And at that point, uh, yeah, they could hold trials within what's left of Ukraine. They could hold trials within this new, you know, Novorossiya, whatever the state is called. But there will be, or or even Russia itself. I think, and, and Putin has signaled that from the beginning, when he, even before the military operation began. We know who's been committing these crimes over the years. We know their names, and they will be held to account every single one of them. So I think that that has been looming there from the beginning. Um, as far as NATO not coming in, uh, John, I wish I was confident of that as you are, because there are an awful lot of people, including, you know, what's his name, Adam Kinziger and people right. who are trying Still to get calling for it to, for military force. If there is a chemical, biological or nuclear attack, what, what would just why not have an engraved invitation then for a false flag? I mean, this, this the idea that the uh, only way to salvage this from the Western side is to get NATO involved directly. 
That is alive and well in some circles in the United States, I think in other capitals as well. And, um, you know, these people don't like to admit defeat. Oh, boy, oh, boy. I want to ask you about uh, about sanctions. Should we be thinking about more sanctions against Russia? I saw on the BBC today, for example, that uh, the British have put sanctions on Patriarch Kirill, the head of the uh, of the Russian Orthodox Church. I that has to be unprecedented. I've never heard of such a thing before. But is it even possible to levy more sanctions than what we've seen? Sure, there is. You can always always sanction more individuals, as you mentioned, Patriarch Kirill, uh, family members of various officials. I guess corruption of blood as a uh, as a principle in jurisprudence is out the window now, too. Um, the, the problem is, is as I think we've discussed before, most of the sanctions that they put on Russia have actually been hurting the sanctioning countries yes. more than they've been hurting Russia, which is why you have these these bizarre things about surreptitious way for European and uh, European countries in America to buy Russian oil that supposedly they're boycotting under under sanctions and and, and effectively conspiring sub Rusa to undercut their own sanctions. Now, you know, it's just, it's just utterly bizarre. There's not much more they can do to Russia in, in the broad sense of, you know, economic and financial sanctions. And, and what they can do, it's just simply going to inflict more pain on the countries inflicting the sanctions. Yeah, but I have to I, I would have to predict if we do see something like war crimes trials for uh, Ukrainians in Russia, the West is going to feel compelled to do so, to, you know, make a display of doing something. And yeah, I guess I would expect more sanctions that end up perhaps uh, having more blowback on the countries issuing them than the countries they're supposedly targeting. Well, that's right. And I think that's one reason why, uh, when it comes down to it, the Russians don't give a damn. I, I think that the West and it's, it's, it's you know, running around with their chickens with like a head cut off, it, it looms so small in their minds. As, as serious players, that they're going to do what they want to do and let everybody huff and puff and blow and scream and jump up and down and and harm themselves all they want. I don't think they really care that much anymore. Yeah. I want to ask you about this fascinating uh, announcement from the Commerce Department that uh, advanced American computer chips were found in Russian weapon systems. What does an investigation like this look like? Would it be one of those situations where where if it comes to charges, a company is charged with a crime and then they pay a fine. Would individuals in that company be prosecuted for violating export control laws? Uh, or are we going to be told uh, after this investigation is done that, well, these chips were legally sold to a country in you know, Dubai or something and they just somehow made their way into Russian weapon systems? I suspect strongly the latter that there will there will be if they track anything down at all in this you know needle in a haystack, it'll be through a succession of intermediaries where each one can claim that oh I had no idea where they're right. ultimately going to end up and probably in many cases telling the truth and if anybody is held account accountable it'll you know it'll be some smaller players who probably are not guilty of much of anything who you know make some convenient scalps to put on the wall so the investigators can say see we're doing our job. Job. Right. But other than that, I don't expect much to come from it. Uh, one last question for you. Uh, there was an announcement this morning from the January 6th committee that uh, that Ginny Thomas is being subpoenaed. That's the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. She's been in the news a lot lately as uh, information is being released, showing that she was on the phone on January 6th trying to 
convince people to help stop the counting of the electoral votes. Do you see anything coming of this, not even necessarily for Ginny Thomas, but for Clarence Thomas? In the past, there have been Supreme Court justices, um, Abe Fortas comes to mind, uh, who have resigned for less reason than what we're seeing today. I, I think that's highly unlikely. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think Trump remains the primary target of this investigation to keep him from running again. Uh, and again, I think this is one of those things where some smaller people, like we've seen of a lot of the other people that are still in jail since uh, January 6th, that are, you know, they can be as badly treated as you want because they're insurrectionists. So while we have the double standard that, you know, the people yeah. who from the summer of love in 2020 are, are treated with kid gloves. Right. Uh, I, I, I think I think what's important here is the narrative. If, if uh, Mrs. Thomas is a is a you know useful prop in that narrative, yeah, they may go after her, um, but I I don't know that that's really going to amount to anything regarding her husband. Jim Jatras, thank you so much for joining us. Jim is a former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we're taking a couple minutes to talk about the murders of a journalist and an indigenous rights defender in Brazil, and to ask, you know, who who was responsible for creating what people are calling a, a lawless Amazon? There was a lot of speculation as to what had happened to these two men over the course of the week. Now we have a confession. Uh, we are going to talk about, you know, who who we should be implicating in these deaths. We're joined by Maria Luisa Mendoza. She's director of the Network for Social Justice and Human Rights in Brazil. Maria, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So we are talking about the murders of British journalist Dom Phillips and indigenous expert Bruno Pereira, who was also an employee of Brazil's National Indian Foundation, which is supposed to help establish and carry out policies relating to indigenous people in Brazil. The two went missing on June 5th, Over the past week, we had gotten kind of uh, different reports as to whether their bodies or belongings had been found, as to who might have targeted them. There were immediate fears that the two had been killed because both were involved in tracking and publicizing threats to and encroachments upon what should be protected indigenous land or environmentally uh, conserved land in the remote Javari Valley in Amazona state. Um, The thing is, these threats... And encroachments come from so many different quarters. It was really hard to to guess who might have been responsible because, you know, it could be people behind illegal logging. It could be people behind illegal hunting, illegal burning and farming, government bodies that are supposed to be preventing these actions, but which in some cases might be facilitating them. And now after a couple of days, we have a confession from a man who was arrested days after it was clear that the two weren't coming back. This man, Amarildo da Costa Oliveira, was initially identified as someone fishing illegally in the area. But people are saying that the deaths of these two men should be taken as a sign that the Amazon itself has become a lawless land run by organized crime and no one else. And so I wanted to start there and ask you what is happening in Amazonas state and in the rainforest that covers it. Yes, uh, 
this is a very important case, and uh, I think it's very important that uh, we have international attention to pressure the Brazilian government and uh, to pressure also other governments that uh, do business in Brazil and corporations, mining corporations, agribusiness corporations that profit from the destruction of the Amazon, uh, to pressure the Brazilian government because, as we know, the current uh, government of Bolsonaro has uh, talked about, uh, you know, the need uh, to take over indigenous land. Uh, he has uh, basically defunded governmental agencies that uh, monitor deforestation and environmental destruction. In the case of Kunai, which is the National Indigenous Foundation, the uh, governmental agency that uh, uh, Bruno Pereira was uh, part of, uh, uh, he was actually fired when mm. Naro took power. Bruno was fired and he was in charge of uh, the, uh, the department of this agency that uh, protected uh, isolated indigenous communities. So after uh, getting fired by Bolsonaro, he started to work directly with indigenous organizations. And uh, so, of course, you know, uh, the, the person that uh, they found and arrested uh, was probably not acting on his own. Mm -hmm. He and his brother uh, apparently were arrested and are accused of uh, being, you know, the, the murderers in this case. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, usually what happens in the Amazon and other parts of rural Brazil is that uh, you have someone else at the top to pay gunmen, um, you know, to mm -hmm. own these types of crimes. I want to talk more about the government and, and what's happened to regulation. But uh, can you talk to us about what some of the industries are that are most active and most destructive in the region? You know, when you talk about the potential for uh, these two men who've been arrested to have just been sort of acting on or orders from somewhere else, what kind of business interests are we talking about? Yeah, we are talking about uh, illegal uh, logging. Uh, for the timber industry, we're talking about illegal fishing, uh, mining, and agribusiness. Uh, so, and of course, you know, there is also a report that uh, the, the area has been also dominated by drug trafficking. So the thing is, if you don't have governmental agencies that monitor those remote areas that protect indigenous lands, this Indigenous communities have the legal right to land and have the legal right to be protected. And they themselves protect the area against those illegal activities. So, you know, if the government is not protecting them, then it opens the space for those types of uh, illegal activities. Mm -hmm. The government is responsible in this case, at least by omission, but not you know, doing its job of uh, legally protecting those communities and legally protecting the Amazon. But also we need to look at uh, international corporations, mining corporations, agribusiness corporations, because mm -hmm. all of this is, uh, all of these activities are connected to the export sector of Brazil. So, 
you know, the mining industry, agribusiness, all of these uh, commodities are commodities for exports. So we need also, for example, to pressure uh, international corporations and governments, for example, to boycott those commodities from Brazil, to pass mm -hmm. a trade legislation to block trade from those commodities that are based on deforestation and illegal activities. I want to, I, I mean, we've talked about the Brazilian government, but I want to just, uh, I want to come back to it a little bit more. Uh, the government of Jair Bolsonaro, as, as you said, they've cut budgets for for protection of these lands across the board. It cut the budget of the Ministry of Environment by more than a third. It cut other similar entities' budgets slash below the bare minimum that they require to do their jobs, uh, you know, inspection and monitoring. This is according to people in those agencies. And even a former head of federal police for the Amazonas state said, the rules that apply there are those of organized crime. Criminal organizations operate there with the support of local and state politicians and tentacles even at the highest level of the Brazilian government. And Phillips himself, when it appeared that Bolsonaro was was going to win the election, predicted a life that for journalists would become much more dangerous. Uh, and so, you know, even though these murders are, are right now being pinned on, you know, this one man with, and the, with his brother arrested perhaps as an accomplice, you know, uh, how how explicitly should we blame the Brazilian government? You said that they should be blamed by by omission, but I wonder how much the the statements of Bolsonaro have really made people feel like they can act with impunity. Yes, uh, well, what I mean by omission is that uh, the Bolsonaro government is, of course, guilty, but for not protecting. Uh, the indigenous lands that uh, need to be protected. FUNAI, which is the agency that uh, Bruno was part of, has been you know, completely defunded and uh, its um, employees have been replaced by military personnel, by Bolsonaro. Mm -hmm. so these agencies that uh, used to have experts uh, like Bruno Pereira, mm -hmm. now are run by the military. And uh, so also Bolsonaro has um, given, has put out many statements uh, against indigenous communities, mm -hmm. that uh, indigenous people don't have any, shouldn't have any right to land. Uh, it also uh, is trying to open up indigenous land for mining activities, so passing legislation. So Bolsonaro is definitely giving incentives to environmental destruction and violence mm -hmm. countryside against indigenous peoples, against peasants, you know, communities that uh, not only have been living in the land for many, many generations and have the legal right to land, but also communities that protect the land against those destructive activities. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, but the thing is, if Bolsonaro does not uh, receive any pressure from outside, it's not going to change because this is what he wants. When, you know, we heard that um, uh, they had been missing, uh, Bruno and Dom have been mm -hmm. missing. Bolsonaro said that, uh, oh, it was, it's really dangerous to be 
doing these types of adventures. Mm-hmm. Well, he characterized both as being adventures, you know, yeah. uh, doing tourism in the Amazon. But the thing is, uh, Pereira has met, had met before he died. He had had several meetings with governmental agencies, with the public prosecutor's office. So everybody knew what he was doing. You know, mm-hmm. he was trying to protect the land against these illegal activities. So this was not just an accident. Mm-hmm. This was probably something that was planned well planned before because several governmental agencies knew about you know what they were doing in the area that they were reporting those activities and trying to you know to defend the the indigenous community that's interesting because you know one of the things that's come up in reporting on the investigation is that you know it was indigenous group as i understand it it was indigenous groups who alerted uh, the police to the fact that these men were missing, who seemed to have been really helpful in the investigation, uh, who, you know, provided evidence that led to this fisherman. And there's been some criticism of the police for not mentioning uh, the assistance indigenous groups gave them. And so I think it's interesting also that you have Bolsonaro, I think with that comment, basically suggesting that it is perhaps these indigenous groups who are the violent and dangerous ones who who you should be afraid of. But in fact, it seems like you know, at least in this investigation, they have been the ones trying to uh, to find these men and to find justice for them. Exactly. The reporting we have seen, including reporting from The Guardian and uh, other news outlets, is that, uh, yes, the, you know, the participation of indigenous uh, people in searching mm-hmm. them was key because, of course, they know the area and they also, the indigenous peoples, they form groups to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Because they know that they cannot count on the government for protection. And they know the area very well, and they had a close relationship with Pereira mm-hmm. because he has been working, he had, he had been working with those indigenous communities for many years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and of course now the indigenous communities are also calling for justice and, uh, you know, demanding uh, uh, a full investigation. And if it wasn't for them, we probably couldn't even find their bodies because the the local police and the federal police Mm -hmm took a long time to even start the search. Let me also ask you, you've mentioned a couple times that in the absence of government, you know, regulation and monitoring and oversight that indigenous people have been left to defend themselves, themselves to defend their lands themselves. And I imagine that the kind of violence that has been visited on Phillips and Pereira is not anything new to indigenous people there. It just probably doesn't get very much attention. And so I I wonder if you could talk to us about that. Is this something that, you know, is getting attention because you have a British journalist, you have a well-known expert in Brazil suffering it, uh, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't think that this kind of thing is unheard of there. Well, yes, of course. Uh, You know, especially under Bolsonaro, there has been an increase violence against indigenous peoples, you know, killings of indigenous leaders, cases of displacement, burning communities, burning their houses. Uh, So several types of attacks, not just in the Amazon, but in other parts of Brazil, because we have indigenous communities in other parts of Brazil as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, those 
cases don't get much attention. Uh, where we have human rights organizations in Brazil that report on those cases, but uh, of course, you know, they don't get as much visibility. So that's why, at least, we need to take this tragedy, you know, as a way to increase solidarity with indigenous people, increase international pressure. Because international pressure is the only way, and you know, financial pressure, boycotts of uh, of uh, Brazilian commodities, you know, agribusiness commodities, timber mining, pressuring uh, governments to uh, to stop trading those commodities with Brazil. This is the only message that Bolsonaro is going. Uh, to, to listen to. And can you go into a little bit more detail about uh, the international complicity in creating this lawlessness? You know, you've mentioned uh, wanting international pressure on Brazil, and th- this is the only thing that Bolsonaro will respond to. But as you mentioned before, you know, uh, the the products that are being trafficked and and logged and poached are not only for Brazilian consumption. And the Amazon is not uh, important only to Brazil. And so, you know, I, I have to feel like one, just because there is international interest in protecting the Amazon for the climate, as well as the fact that the appetite for these products comes from outside Brazil, I think we should see uh, you know, forces that drum up that demand and companies that do business with these organizations as as perhaps complicit in setting the stage for this violence. And so I wanted to you to talk about that a little bit. Right. How how should we see the role of maybe multinational corporations in this? Yes, they have a key role because, you know, the mining products, the agricultural commodities, they are all produced for export. None of this is for Brazilian consumption, for internal consumption, mm-hmm. uh, at least in that area. And in addition to that, uh, the trading corporations that negotiate those commodities in stock markets or export those commodities directly from Brazil, they are also multinational corporations. So definitely we need to take a look into that. And uh, again, I think that, uh, you know, if there was not for external, an external market for those commodities, there wouldn't be an incentive for those illegal activities in Brazil. Yeah, which makes it a harder problem to to tackle. I have kind of a big question in kind of a short time, but, you know, it's possible that Bolsonaro will, you know, will lose his position as president pretty soon. Uh, but I wonder how much luck whoever the next president is will have in trying to crack down on these activities, because, you know, especially if, if we are talking about a leftist, if we are talking about Lula, there's going to be a real desire uh, in this sort of neoliberal West to paint any crackdown on businesses as, you know, an attack on, on rights and civil rights. And so I wonder, you know, how, how important is a change of leadership going to be? Well, I think, again, you know, if the United States or European countries, uh, they have to, you know, they have to act on things that uh, they seem to defend. For example, when we talk about climate change, Mining and agribusiness are a main cause of climate change. Mm-hmm. So if uh, Europe and United States, European countries and the United States, they want to deal 
with climate change in a serious way, they have to look at the role of uh, multinational corporations, European and U.S. corporations, mm -hmm. in those destructive activities, because we are not only talking about a problem that, you know, it's a part of a isolated area in the Amazon far away. The destruction of the Amazon has a huge impact on climate change. Mining agribusiness have a huge impact on climate change. And uh, if, uh, you know, the countries in the global north uh, do not look into that impact and try to establish some type of regulation, it's not going to change. We're not going to be able to deal with the climate crisis if mm -hmm. we don't look at the role of these international corporations and we don't, you know, and uh, countries in the global north need to support governments um, in Brazil that uh, are serious about protecting the environment and protecting human rights. That was Maria Luisa Mendoza. She's director of the Network for Social Justice and Human Rights in Brazil. Maria Luisa, you want to tell our listeners where they can go to find more of your work? Yes, uh, our website is www.social.org.br for Brazil. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk about messages from space, junk in space, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin having another phone call and more reporting on the Pacific. All that and more coming up here on Political Misfits. We are on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And, you know, there was a little bit more climate news this morning. The new government of Australia, Albanese, right? Uh, yeah. Albanese. Uh-huh. Uh, they switched that government. It totally caught me by surprise. <laughs> uh, but they have committed to a more ambitious greenhouse gas reduction target of 43% less. Wow. By the end of the decade, wow. which is not even like 10 years from today, no, right? But by 2030, uh, this was, of course, one of the new prime minister's key election pledges. Uh, the conservative government had only only stuck to uh, a seven year old pledge to reduce emissions by 26 to 28 percent by 2030. So this is almost doubling that, which seems like Australians have something of an appetite for. Well, good. Yeah, that's that's a real change. I mean, we saw lots of commitments to things at COP26 also. Yes. The follow through is what's going to be important. That's right. But it is at least, you know, the population seems to to have an appetite for it and the government be at least willing to commit to it on paper. Good. Yeah. Well, our next guest is ready. Uh, the science press, one of the things we're going to talk about, is buzzing today with reports that a Chinese, something called a Chinese fast telescope, which stands for 500 meter Aperture Spherical Radio Telescope may have picked up radio signals from what could be an alien civilization. The signals came from two different places. One was deep space data collected in 2019 that they've just reviewed. The other was while targeting exoplanets uh, earlier this year. The Chinese team said that they're intrigued by the signals, but they could also simply just be radio interference. 
and the Hubble Space Telescope seems to have discovered something that scientists are calling a wandering black hole. I never heard of this until today. Um, when stars massive enough to dwarf our own sun die, they explode in a supernova and the remaining core is crushed by its own gravity, which forms a black hole. Sometimes the explosion may send the black hole into motion, hurtling it across the galaxy like a pinball. That's so scary. Isn't that crazy? Um, by rights, there should be a lot of these roving black holes known to scientists, but they're practically invisible in space, and therefore they're very difficult to uh, uncover. Astronomers believe that 100 million free-floating black holes roam our galaxy. Fascinating. The good thing space is so big. I'll say, and keeps <laughs> getting bigger, apparently. Now researchers believe that they've detected one of these one of these roving black holes. The detection was made after dedicating six years to observations, and astronomers were even able to make a precise mass measurement of the extreme cosmic object. Also, the European Space Agency this week released a trove of data on almost two billion stars in the Milky Way that have been collected as part of its Gaia mission. They hope to better understand how stars are born and how they die. And NASA is embarking on a controversial mission to better understand UFOs, or now they're being called unidentified aerial phenomena. We are joined by Dr. Avi Loeb. He is the Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University, former chair of the Department of Astronomy, founding director of the Black Hole Initiative. Good for us director of the Institute for Theory and Computation, and best-selling author. His most recent book is called Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Dr. Loeb, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're thrilled to have you, and we have so much to ask you. Uh, let's begin with, with what China's FAST telescope has found. These are radio waves that seem to be repeating in a pattern. Tell us what the possibilities here might be. Do radio waves just travel into infinity like this, and they can be picked up, uh, you know, years after they've been uh, created? Yeah, so radio waves are just like ordinary light that uh, we can see, oh. except they have uh, much longer wavelengths, and they travel at the speed of light, and they can go anywhere. And in fact, we've been transmitting uh, radio waves uh, since uh, Giuliano Marconi uh, sent the first communication sig uh, signal across the Atlantic. Uh, and so uh, if there is an extraterrestrial civilization out there, they will know about our existence. Uh, that uh, event was about a century ago, so these uh, radio waves that we sent are now um, 100 light years away. Uh, and uh, there are many wow. stars within that distance. And if and there is a civilization near one of them, uh, they will be aware of our existence. And uh, it will take us a while to hear back. But you can imagine the same thing in reverse, that there is a civilization out there that sent a signal and we can pick it up. Uh, how would we know that it's uh, artificial and not natural? That's the fundamental question. And the, the claim here by uh, the report that was leaked uh, is that the, the signal is uh, over a very narrow band of 
wavelengths or frequencies. And if you remember uh, the old radios, the, there was a dial where you would uh, change the frequency. And right. every now and then you would go across a, a, a very narrow frequency band that uh, corresponds to a radio station and you will hear a, a signal. And so uh, they claim to have detected a signal that is indeed over a very narrow frequency band of the type that we are familiar with with radio uh, stations and uh, the fundamental question is does it come from the sky from far away from a source near another star or is it just interference from our own uh, signals that there are uh, the earth is full of signals uh, that humans uh, produce and we have to be very careful at arguing that something comes from far away and uh, most of the time we we get fooled um, the, a couple of years ago there was a claim that uh, the breakthrough listen project detected perhaps a radio signal from a uh, Proxima Centauri, the nearest star. Oh. And then after careful analysis, it was realized that no, it's actually human made from Earth. So I w before seeing the details of what they detected at what significance and what are the properties of the signal, it's very difficult to assess whether it's uh, from outside of this mm -hmm. Earth. And most likely it is from this Earth. Oh, how interesting. This is an enormous telescope, this Chinese fast uh, telescope. What else is it collecting? And are there other similar telescopes around the world? Well, the first big one was the Arecibo telescope in Puerto Rico uh, that um, uh, the National Science Foundation funded. Uh, and then, uh, unfortunately, a couple of years ago, it collapsed. Uh, it right. was very old. It was built in the 60s. So uh, uh, it was about 300 meters in diameter. And the Chinese decided to build a an even bigger one, which, uh, which is 500 meters in diameter. And that's the one we are talking about. It's currently the only operational big radio dish and the biggest in the world. Now, it takes a while to master the uh, skills of the Arecibo telescope. Uh, there, there are lots of uh, details, technical details, that uh, perhaps the people that operate this Chinese telescope are not fully aware of. So I would be you know, careful at, uh, uh, you know, jumping up and down if they uh, say something without uh, substantiating it through scientific paper. Uh, at the moment, you know, we just need to wait and see if they come out with the details and then assess whether they're real. Uh, this kind of a telescope can see a lot of things. There are lots of things on the sky that are uh, exciting in the radio band. For example, there are very uh, large jets that are being uh, ejected from black holes, uh, giant black holes at the centers of galaxies, and, and those emit radio waves. Uh, the, 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 actually, the relic radiation from the Big Bang is in the radio band. Wow. Um, we can see emission from hydrogen uh, at very... Uh, large distances in the radio. It's called 21. It's at a wavelength of 21 centimeters. Um, there are lots of interesting. One can look at um, the glow of uh, clusters of galaxies in the radio. Uh, lots of interesting targets to look at. But of course, the public is most interested in in the question: Are we alone? Right. Right. And it's a question that people ask constantly. Is it not? 
<laughs> yeah, I'm uh, personally over the past five years, I've been focused on this question. And I wrote a book uh, called Extraterrestrial that uh, discusses the possibility that we may have stumbled over evidence um, for um, other civilizations. Uh, we, just over the past decade, we had uh, been fortunate to discover the first objects from outside the solar system. And uh, it turns out that with my student, we, we found an object uh, detected already in 2004. Uh, it was a meteor that came from outside the mm -hmm. solar system, and it, it uh, looks like an outlier. It's uh, tougher than iron based on the fact that it uh, disintegrated only in the very low atmosphere. We are planning an expedition to find the fragments from this meteor uh, in the coming months. And um, the second wow. uh, interstellar object uh, called Oumuamua was uh, even weirder. Um, it didn't look like a comet or an asteroid. It behaved in strange ways that I describe in my book. So uh, there is a lot to discover. And, uh, you know, one way we, we might find that there are other civilizations out there is not by detecting the radio signals, but by finding relics, uh, spacecraft or other equipment that they may have sent. Oh, that's fascinating. Can you, oh, I'm sorry, go go right ahead. Sorry, uh, Dr. Loeb, I was just curious, as, as John said, you know, people are very interested, people are have a tendency to sort of latch on to anything that could be a sign and be right. like, look, look, is it aliens? Have we found it? Have we found it? And, you know, most of the time it is from, you know, it, it has some other explanation. But I think the last time we talked, we we touched on a subject that I'm going to ask you to touch on again. It is interesting to me that this question seems to be so exciting to the general population, mm -hmm. and yet, you know, dismissed quite a lot uh, in the academy, I think. Not entirely, right? You, you do have sort of search for extraterrestrial lives sponsored by some universities. But I, I wondered if you could talk about that contrast there. The, the people are very interested in this question, but it sort of seemed as uh, maybe fringy if you're a little bit too interested in it, if you're in the hard sciences. Yeah, well, uh, scientists often say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, mm -hmm. and that's a quote from Carl Sagan. Um, my point is extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you really have to search in order to find anything. You can't sit at home and say, I don't have any neighbors. Uh, without looking through your windows. Right. Uh, you have to check the front door, you have to look through your windows, and then you can say, I searched for my neighbors, I haven't found them. The search is not being done. And uh, a year ago, I established the Galileo Project, which is the first scientific uh, study of objects that look anomalous in the sky that we want to figure out. The US government, uh, surprisingly, is uh, very curious about objects that military personnel sees. And um, they established an office um, that uh, started operations this month. And they also, um, uh, th th there was also a congressional hearing last month about it. And NASA is, as we will discuss, uh, establishing a study of these unidentified objects. So you get a situation which is really strange that not only the public, but the government uh, is interested in figuring out the nature of things that uh, they cannot understand. And, and I think it's time for science to uh, address uh, the nature of these objects and figure out what they are. And uh, it, it, this is not a subject that needs to be ridiculed because uh, the people that fund science are asking for help. Um, and uh, I think it's exciting. No matter what, it's a fishing expedition. We don't know what we will find. We, sh we should be agnostic, but we should be guided by evidence, by data. 
And to get the data, we need to allocate funds. So the Galileo project is funded by private donations. And um, I very much hope that in the future, this will become part of the mainstream and uh, we will, there will be no stigma on, on addressing it. Of course, there is, it's a mixed bag. And you know, the, in the past, there were people claiming some unsubstantiated claims. And uh, we should just ignore that because you know, we need to collect scientific evidence and be guided by it. But if you ridicule something, you don't collect any evidence and you maintain your your point of view. And, you know, that's what happened with Galileo when he argued that uh, maybe the sun doesn't move around the earth. Right. And, of course, uh, people put him in house arrest and today they would have canceled him on social media. And so the mistake they made was not to <laughs> adhere to what the evidence shows. Yeah, I, I watched a, a, a clip from uh, the, the um, Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia. Uh, from earlier this week, and he was he was giving a television interview, and he was asked about uh, about the sun revolving around the Earth. That scientists all know that the Earth revolves around the sun, and he said that no, that the Quran says that the sun revolves around the Earth, and you can either be a Muslim or you can be an apostate. And so we as Muslims, he said, in Saudi Arabia, we know that the that the sun revolves around the earth, period, end of discussion. There is a very simple way to resolve this. Just put him on a spacecraft that goes yes. up and he will see. Yes. He will see. Because my point is, if you ask him to design a rocket that would reach Mars, just give him that challenge using what he believes to be the case, okay, that the Earth is at the center, he would never reach the destination. He would shoot right. rockets in directions that make no sense whatsoever <laughs> because right. he has the wrong idea about reality. So my point is, it, it's not a matter of what's written in, in a particular text or in another text. It's not a matter of what my opinion versus your opinion is on a subject. It's not, we're not talking politics here. Right. We are talking about reality. Yeah, okay? it's where the you science points you. Want. The, the point is you will never reach your destination if you have the wrong idea about where your destination is. Yes. Okay. If you think that Mars moves around the Earth, you would never get there because Mars doesn't move around the Earth. The Earth and Mars are moving around the sun. Right. And the only way to get from Earth to Mars is to recognize this fact. Right. And uh, if you take this person on a trip to space, there will be no doubt if he opens his eyes and looks through the window, he will see that the Earth and Mars are moving around the sun. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Carl Sagan once, uh, once said in response to flat earthers that all you have to do is, uh, is what the ancient Egyptians did, that you, you construct an obelisk in Alexandria and another obelisk in in uh, Cairo, and if the Earth were flat, the shadows would be exactly the same at exactly the same time. And they're not. They're not the same because the Earth is round. It's as simple as that. You just have to follow the science. Right. Well, you know, all of these are intellectual arguments, but the point is you can actually look through the window of a spacecraft and figure this out. Yes. You can figure out 
that the earth is round just by looking at the earth. It looks like a ball. And, uh, <laughs> and then you can see that Mars and the earth are moving around the sun. So it's, my, my point is, it's not a matter of what text says what, you know. And it's, it, 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 you know, people should not attach it to their ego as if I'm right and you are wrong because it has nothing to do with who is right. It has to do with what reality is like. And if you, if you have the wrong ideas about reality, you know, you will make mistakes. If you think right. like, that the virus uh, can be cured by some uh, mysterious potion, uh, it will not work. But if you know how to develop mRNA vaccine that uh, protects humans against the virus, then you will get a different outcome. So my point is, if you understand reality, you adapt to it properly. And the best way to test if your idea is correct or not is to see if it works. Yes. Yes, indeed. Let me ask you about this this new NASA office. NASA is embarking on a controversial new program to track and study UFOs. This comes after the Pentagon went public with many of the sightings made by military pilots. Widespread coverage in the news, very popular uh, topic of conversation. Is the purpose of these programs to simply understand what it is that the pilots and others are seeing? Um, NASA has made it clear that their job, and they actually said this in a press release, their job is not to prove or disprove the existence of alien life. It's to study what it is that's being seen. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So, in fact, the story starts a year ago when um, uh, Bill Nelson, uh, the head of NASA, uh, said that scientists should get engaged in explaining these unidentified aerial phenomena. And the following morning, I uh, sent an email to um, the person under him responsible for science, Thomas uh, Zurbuchen. And uh, I told him um, I'll be happy to help him make his boss happy. Uh, and uh, uh, he asked me to write a white paper, and I did, and uh, I didn't. I never got a response. So I established the Galileo Project, which is basically following the narrative of my white paper. And uh, now, NASA, a year later, came around and they decided to establish this committee, this study. And now one has to understand, uh, this is just a committee that is supposed to review the available data. It's not supposed to do any research. Just to review which data sets are available, what should NASA do in the future in terms of um, funding the study of, of these data sets and what kind of new data sets should be assembled. And, and that's just a recommendation that will let later be translated into a request for a certain budget from that con Congress needs to approve. Uh, so I think it will take two years from now before uh, any funds are allocated to actual research of uh, unidentified aerial phenomena. And gladly, you know, I had a number of uh, multi-billionaires visited the, uh, the porch of my home. And, um, and as a result, I got um, a few million dollars that allowed me to establish the Galileo project. So we are doing the research right now, uh, rather than wait uh, two years before mm -hmm. the budget will be allocated by NASA. So I think, you know, they're going in the right direction, but it's a, a very sluggish move. Uh, and um, uh, instead, you know, what science really needs is uh, boots on the ground, people that actually collect data, analyze it. And that's pretty much the Galileo project. Uh, what do you see um, 
coming out of the Galileo project in the in the near term, what kind of revelations do you expect uh, to make? And especially in light of this, what appears to be a new trend uh, in the direction of transparency uh, from the government. Right. So the problem with uh, the government is that most of the data they have, the highest quality data, is classified. Uh. And the reason is simple, because it's based on uh, classified sensors. It's not because the sky is classified. The sky is not classified, most of it. So uh, uh, as a result, that the government doesn't release. We, we don't see the, the best data that is available. Uh, and the solution to that is to obtain our own data rather than wait for the government to declassify or to tell us what they see. Um, and um, uh, it's, it's understandable. I mean, they, they are constrained by national security issues, and uh, but science should not be uh, limited uh, by those concerns. Sci science, you know, we should look at the sky and figure out what's out there and um, without prejudice. So what the Galileo project aims to do is build the telescope systems. The first one is assembled right now on the roof of the Harvard College Observatory and we'll start collecting data next month. And um, the hope is that uh, within a year we will have copies of it in various locations and a, a large data sets that will be analyzed by computers. To, we will try to figure out what kind of objects are we seeing? We, are, we will take a video of the sky in the infrared, visible light and so forth, and just, you know, figure out what we are seeing. And obviously, most of the things we would see would be either natural, birds, um, or human-made, like drones or airplanes. But even if we see just one object that doesn't belong to these categories, that would be extremely important and exciting. And the second uh, branch of the Galileo project is uh, uh, to, to, make, uh, to have an expedition to Papua New Guinea, where we will scoop the ocean floor for, for the fragments of the first interstellar meteor that landed there in 2014. Wow. And uh, that, you know, there is hope that this meteor was really unusual, that perhaps it was a technological relic because uh, we know that it was tougher than iron, uh, based on the fireball that it created in the lower atmosphere. And then uh, the third um, uh, part of the Galileo project is to design a space mission that will rendezvous with objects in space that do not collide with the Earth, that are far from Earth, um, and just send a, sp a spacecraft that will come close to them. Uh, and of course, we need to select which object we want to come close to, to take a photograph. These are objects that would not look like comets or asteroids or rocks, and they behave, they would behave in strange ways. And uh, the, the first uh, such was uh, Oumuamua that my book, Extraterrestrial, uh, discusses. Can you tell us uh, about some of the work being done by the European Space Agency What's the purpose of mapping two billion stars? What do scientists hope to learn about the birth of the Milky Way from, from all of this work? Yeah, so the Gaia mission is uh, indeed measuring the slight motions of uh, stars, two billion stars in the sky over a period of a few years. Uh, and uh, the motion is, is minute. It's a tiny um, given that we are dealing just with a few years of time, uh, uh, the time window, and but nevertheless the stars move a little bit in angle on the sky, and by measuring how much they move, you basically get in three dimensions um, their motion because we already we can measure in principle the 
the Doppler effect, mm-hmm. the, the motion of each of these stars uh, uh, along the line of sight to the star. So, so by measuring how much it moves on the sky, in addition, then we have the velocity in all three dimensions. And that is extremely important. So just imagine, you know, uh, millions of stars for which we have information about how they move in three dimensions. And also we know their positions. So we we can also measure their distance um, using parallax or using some other uh, techniques. So the point is we are mapping the stars of the Milky Way galaxy both in velocity and position. And uh, there are many uses for that. Um, we can find stars that are in pairs, in binaries, and we can find evidence for companions to stars that are dark, that we can't see because they're a black hole, for example. Um, but nevertheless, we see the influence of this black hole on the star next to it. Um, we can uh, test Einstein's theory of general relativity because we know how stars move. Uh, we can figure out the mass of the Milky Way galaxy that binds all these stars together, how the mass is distributed. In fact, we already know from this uh, survey that the Milky Way um, had building blocks that came together to make it. Uh, and there were some recent uh, giant mergers uh, we see the relics of those because, um, you know, some stars are moving uh, as a stream, um, a, st- a stream of stars that originated from another galaxy that fell into the Milky Way. And we can detect those streams and figure out the history of how the Milky Way was assembled uh, over the past few billion years. That's that's exciting, that's yes. just figuring out how the Milky Way was made. And it pretty much agrees with what we expected from uh, uh, cosmological simulations. But seeing it in the real world is exciting. Also, it, it, it gives us a sense of how our home galaxy was established, mm-hmm. you know, it, because all we see from past data is uh, the Milky Way itself, a disk of stars. But we don't know how it came together. And, uh, you know, monitoring the motion of stars allows us to tell that. Can you tell us a little bit about these wandering black holes? I can see how they're tough to detect, but can scientists detect the damage that they cause to other stars or planets as they work their way through the galaxy? And uh, what other discoveries do you expect to to, uh, see come out of the Hubble Space Telescope? Right. So in principle... Uh, I mean, first one has to understand these black holes that we are talking about, the wandering ones, uh, resulted from the collapse of massive stars. Mm -hmm. They have a mass of the order of a few up to several tenths of the mass of the sun. So um, they're not gigantic. They're relative, just a factor of, let's say, 10, the mass of the sun. So in order for them to cause damage to a star, they really need to come close to the star. And the chance for that is is very small. Uh, Mm -hmm. We don't have to worry about any of these coming close to us uh, in our orbit around the sun um, because, uh, you know, there are just not a large number of them. And uh, uh, of course, you know, if a star happens to collide with one of them, it will be disrupted. But but that doesn't happen very often. Um, And um, what, what it tells us is, 
you know, it, it allows us to indeed uh, confirm that uh, the most massive stars end up in black holes. We see it already from gravitational waves that were detected by the LIGO experiment. Uh, we know that uh, black holes exist in this mass range, and they col we can calibrate how many of them are because some of them come in pairs, and we see the gravitational waves, the ripples in space of and time that are generated when uh, two of them are very in a very tight binary are coming together. Uh, so, um, you know, I wouldn't call it a revolutionary in any way, but it's just a, the, the technique that was used to find them, this black hole that was reported is uh, special. It's basically using uh, the effect of, of the black hole on uh, the light that comes from a background star. Mm -hmm. So it basically acts as a magnifying glass. It's a, a, a lens it's called the gravitational lens. And and uh, so we are seeing a background star and then the background star light gets magnified in a very um, specific way that uh, that uh, that can be explained if, if there was a black hole passing in front of it. So that's how we infer the existence of the black hole. So that's, that's a very novel method that was proposed by Albert Einstein in 1940. It's a consequence of his theory of general relativity that that uh, gravity can act as a as a lens, uh, it can uh, focus light from a background source. Dr. Avi Loeb, thank you for joining us. Dr. Loeb is the Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University, former chair of the Department of Astronomy, founding director of the Black Hole Initiative, director of the Institute for Theory and Computation, and best-selling author. He's written a bunch of books. Check him out on Amazon. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to talk about the conversation Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping had today. We will talk about whether it's the U.S. who should be warning China about sanctions or if maybe it should be the other way around. And we will ask how serious India is in its new outreach to East Asia. Joining us for all these conversations is K.J. No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific. K.J., thanks for being here again. Oh, we might have to get K.J. second time. It's, We're going to try him again. Uh, yeah, we'll try him again. I wanted to start with India, where there was a meeting of ASEAN foreign ministers today. This is the first time India has hosted this particular group of ministers, but its relationship with the organization dates back 30 years. Um, high on the agenda was how to respond to the ripple effects of the war in Ukraine, particularly on regional economies and regional security. They also discussed what Singapore's foreign minister described as the sharpening superpower rivalry between the U.S. and China, which she said has direct implications for all of us in Asia. There was criticism of Russia for upending rules and norms, and he said unchecked competition could threaten regional, regional stability. I think it is interesting that, you know, if you take India at its word, the country is 
trying to enhance its ties with the Pacific, particularly in light of India's um, competition and sometimes conflict with China. And also because India is one of the higher profile countries to continue to do business normally with Russia. Right. And yes. so, you know, yes. lots of nations organize these events and they talk more about increasing outreach to other regions. Uh, but I think if India, you know, is seriously motivated to build relationships to its east, I think that could have a really interesting effect on on the region. I don't know if we have KJ back. I'm going to ask if we do. Nope, we're still getting him. I think that I think that is an interesting question. Uh, and I think that sort of India's India's increasing independence when it comes to its foreign policy yes. positions. It's taking on a leadership role. Mm-hmm. On China also, I just thought, I thought that this was uh, sort of funny. You have this Pentagon Undersecretary of uh, Defense for Policy, Colin Kahn, saying yesterday that China should be paying attention to the Western response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and to the sanctions packages in particular that Western states have imposed on Russia. He was stressing that China should learn how the world would react should it decide to use force against Taiwan. And I just thought it was an interesting contrast to headlines that we have seen over the last couple of days that the Biden administration is considering rolling back yeah. some of the tariffs Trump imposed on China in an effort to lower prices here for consumers in the United States. You know, I, I think as we mentioned on the show yesterday, right, even within the Biden administration, you have people noticing that Russia's economy seems to be holding on while American and Western European economies are struggling with inflation and even shortages, right? Tampon yeah. shortages, right. apparently, uh, baby food shortages. And so I wonder, I believe we have our guest here now. I wonder, KJ, uh, what lesson you think China, kind of sh China should be learning from the effect of sanctions on both sides? And what lesson do you think maybe the U.S. should be learning here? Well, I think that uh, China is learning that the U.S. is a lot of bluster and not a lot of action. Uh, clearly, uh, it's obvious that the sanctions are not working. They're, they're hurting Western Europe and the United States far more than they're hurting Russia, you know, which, as we all know, has you know, one of the strongest economies uh, in, in recent months. So, um, I think the, the key uh, lesson here is that uh, Mr. Khan, you know, is misreading uh, the tea leaves. He's misreading history. He's mis misreading the, um, you know, objective historical moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, China is noticing that the U.S. is struggling, uh, that they are not uh, understanding what they're doing, uh, and that um, that sanctions uh, are not cost-free. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, that if China chooses <clears throat> to, uh, you know, engage kinetically over Taiwan, then U.S. sanctions will uh, largely be a paper tiger. And among other things, that this has to do with the fact that China's economy is ten times larger than Russia's, yeah, uh, and is. Uh, integrated with the global supply chain in a way that Russia could only dream of. Yeah, I mean, it, the U.S. is uh, on its way to imposing uh, new regulations with regard to products coming from Xinjiang, and even trying to impose those regulations seems to be a shambles. But I, I want to go back to India just quickly, KJ. Uh, I mentioned India is holding a, a meeting of ASEAN 
foreign ministers today and uh, is talking about trying to enhance its ties with the Pacific. I wonder how how serious you think those um, intentions are and what it will mean if you have a much more active India uh, to its east. Well, I mean, this meeting has to do with celebrating the 30th anniversary of ASEAN-India relations, as mm-hmm. you pointed out. And the, the meeting is largely focused on uh, issues such as tourism, economy, biodiversity, agriculture, sustainable development, public health, medicines, climate change, science, R&D, people-to-people. It is not a military block uh, as the U.S. has been trying to form with the Quad. In fact, I think it's fair to say that, to a large extent, India has largely defaulted from the Quad, and the U.S. is now in search of other partners for the Quad, namely South Korea and other countries in Asia. Mm. So I think that it's, it's, it, I think it signals a shift in alliances and a much more pragmatic orientation on the part of India towards its neighbors and allies and regional uh, uh, regional neighbors. Let's return to U.S. efforts to restrict some Chinese goods, right? As I mentioned before, Joe Biden endlessly mulling over whether repealing some of these Trump-era tariffs would do anything to affect prices in the United States. Um, but Politico has a story out today telling us U.S. importers brace for chaos as Uyghur Act looms. So Biden signed this act in December. It's supposed to uh, prevent goods supposedly made with forced labor labor by entering the United States. So he signed this back in December and agencies had six months to issue guidance on how to follow it. Customs and Border Patrol issued some guidance on Monday, but trade groups are saying that they still have questions, the guidance is inadequate, and importers in particular are supposed to follow guidance that won't be issued until the law takes effect, right? So on the same day you have to start following the law, they will tell you what you need to do in order to follow it. And so they are warning that what they are calling sloppy implementation of this act worsens the risk of supply chain disruptions if the U.S. starts seizing their imports. And now, you know, if you asked me, do I want to see more assurances that the products we consume aren't made with slave labor, I would absolutely say yes, right? And I tend to not sympathize with businesses complaining that their regulatory burden is too onerous, right? But this administration has been very short-sighted on a lot of things. And it also seems to have no interest in punishing, for example, cocoa growers and producers who use slave labor in uh, countries like Mali. And so I expect these rules on Chinese um, products to be perhaps more show than substance. And so I wanted to ask you, I I wanted to ask you if, you know, what impact these regulations could have? Are they actually going to affect the U.S. economy? Is this sort of much ado about nothing? What is going on here? You know, I think it's a jumble. Uh, I think you're absolutely correct that they're more show than substance. And the fact that the guidance is inadequate and inconsistent, that is to say that it doesn't make any sense, is because it is based on a lie. It is based on a presumption of guilt that anything coming out of Xinjiang is automatically assumed to be tainted with an enforced slave labor. Mm-hmm. That is an absolute slander. And uh, there have been numerous studies that have been shown that it is false. Most notably, Skechers did a, 
uh, investigation to its supply chain showed that there was absolutely no forced labor. Nobody was coerced to work, nor were they ever kept from uh, leaving the workplace. And But still, uh, uh, already a shipment of Skechers shoes has been seized. So they've already proved that they're, you know, that it's not tainted, and they were still seized anyway. What is the effect of this? What is the purpose of this? This is to attack the Uyghur population in China under the guise of helping them, force them into unemployment, mm -hmm. thus to use that as a way of stirring up unrest. At the same time, they want to claim that, you know, for example, if uh, factories are not hiring Uyghurs, then they're also discriminating. So they get it both ways. They mm -hmm. are China for discrimination, and they get to presumptively assume that China has enslaved all Uyghurs, which as we have seen over multiple studies, the most latest coming from Michelle Bachelet, mm -hmm. that there is no such thing happening. This is the weaponization of human rights selectively to attack U.S. enemies and to cause disruption and, and um, you know, delegitimation to them. It's purely a political act, but yes, it will create damage to the U.S. economy. It will affect U.S. supply chains. And the fact that it has been poorly thought out is simply more attestation that this is based on a lie. If you tell a lie, you, you get jumbled. You have to tell more lies. It doesn't make sense for anybody, and everybody gets fed up. Mm. It's what is happening right now. Yeah, Michelle Bachelet, of course, is the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, who was just in China uh, not long ago and, you know, did not come out and say anything about finding Uyghur forced labor. And now all the headlines at that trip are about how it was, a, you know, it's a disaster, her failures in China, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, hey, if you don't find the thing that we want you to find, uh, you, you better prepare to exit your position. I also wanted to ask you, KJ, about this conversation that the Russian and Chinese leaders had today. They spoke by phone. This is the second conversation the two have had since the war in Ukraine began. And they spoke about expanding cooperation in different industries like energy, finance and manufacturing. Those three in particular, in light of the sanctions that have been placed on Russia, they talked about supporting each other's security. They talked about cooperating more in multinational organizations like the U.N., which is all, you know, on one level quite standard stuff for a call between the leaders of friendly nations. And so I want to ask if there was anything notable in this exchange or even in the exchange itself. Well, I think the, the key thing to know, and, you know, this is something that the Global Times has also noted, is that they're sending a signal that China and Russia are very, very close, that the strategic partnership and mutual trust remains unchanged and will not change despite uh, Western and U.S. pressure. Uh, and so they have each other's backs, and they will keep on pushing for multipolarity of the international order. That, I think, is the key message, that the days of the unipolar hegemon are now dwindling, uh, the days are numbered, that they are continuing to push for multipolarity. And... Um, the other aspect of this is that China is thinking and working independently. It's assessed its situation on the base of its own critical historical context and judgment. Uh, it wants peace in the Ukraine, but uh, it will not be bullied or uh, pushed or 
cajoled into attacking Russia on the behalf of the United States will not be a subcontractor to U.S. foreign policy. And let's once again note that it is only the Five Eyes and the EU that have effectively levied sanctions against Russia. The best of the world, most of the world, is opposed to sanctions and is not going along with U.S. Uh, US policy. And therefore, I think it speaks furthermore to the weakness and the fragmentation of U.S. hegemony. It is remarkable how much heat Michelle Bachelet is getting after her trip. I mean, you have this Wall Street Journal opinion piece from a couple of days ago calling her the U.N.'s apologist for dictators. Uh, evidence of that is that, you know, she referred to vocational and educational training centers. She did not. She even said when she went to Xinjiang, she she said the visit of the U.N. high commissioner is not a time for I am not here to do deep secret investigation. You know what I mean? She's a very high profile public figure. So I think she sort of couched her remarks uh, with that reality. But still, because she did not, you know, harshly criticize the Chinese government or say that she had uncovered a genocide of Uyghurs, you know, she's being called an apologist for dictators. The other evidence that this opinion piece trots out for um, her apologies is that she blamed the U.S. and its sanctions for hardships in Cuba. I mean, you know, it's it's remarkable how little it takes to, to make you unwelcome in some of these multinational organizations? Well, not, not the multinational organization itself, but the United States uh, and the bandwagoning NGOs mm-hmm. that uh, serve as an echo chamber for the U.S. Uh, propaganda. You know, when yes. Bachelet agreed to go to China, that's when the attacks started happening. Prior to going to China, you know, she had issued some uh, critical remarks about China and people had said, look, you know, this proves it's the United Nations, which is finally criticizing China. But then she agreed, and China agreed, and they gave her wide berth to do whatever she wanted, meet whoever she wanted, do whatever, go anywhere, investigate anything. And once that started to happen, they said that she should not go to China. Mm-hmm. She would be subjected to, you know, dog and pony show, which was absolutely not the case. But, um, you know, as I said before, you know, this is once again the way in which the United States and its bandwagoning propaganda, um, you know, uh, subcontractors uh, misuse and abuse human rights discourse as a way to attack and delegitimate countries. And once that um, system or once that project starts to unwind, then they will attack the messenger, which is exactly what has happened in this case. Let's go over the facts once again. There is no genocide, nothing even approaching. In fact, it's an insult to use that word in this context. Uh, The Uyghur population has grown by leaps and bounds. The economy has grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, They get to exercise their own culture, their language, their traditions. And most of all, they were exempted from the one-child policy. So I think just on those bare facts alone, we know that it's an absurdity. But the U.S. needs to create some kind of extraordinary lie in order to justify uh, this ongoing hostility, this rise to escalation to war against China. And you know that the further away you drift from the truth, 
the closer we are to engaging in kinetic war. Mm-hmm. And actually, it has put a, a span into the works uh, on that project. And therefore, she's being dragged through the mud and pilloried. And this is why she's decided not to seek uh, a second term. That was journalist and member of Veterans for Peace, KJ No. KJ, we always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take one last break and come back with some final headlines for you. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We're bringing you a few last headlines, and boy, John is excited. John's excited (laughs) to talk more about his favorite new target, Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker, the Republican nominee for the United States Senate. He is getting himself in deeper and deeper and deeper. CNN is saying this is the worst possible week that Herschel Walker could have. At the beginning of the week, he was forced to confirm a story in the Daily Beast saying that he had a child out of wedlock while he was married to his wife and that he has paid child support for this child, although he's never met the child, right? Well, it turns out there are three children born out of wedlock. He doesn't have one um, overall child, his son Christian. Yeah. He's got four, three boys and a girl. It just came out today. Uh, He's very defensive about it. He said, I've never denied their existence. I just didn't want to use them as political props in a political campaign, he said. Okay, that's one thing. Um, The other thing is he made an announcement on a conservative radio show today saying that he had been trained at, at the FBI training facility in Quantico. And when the the interviewer said, you're kidding. His response was, y'all didn't know I was an FBI agent. We sure didn't. Well, the FBI didn't either <laughs> because he's not an FBI agent. And then he went on to say that he is an honorary deputy sheriff in Cobb County and three other counties in Georgia that he didn't name. And then the Cobb County Sheriff's Department spokesman came out and said, we don't have any record of ever making him or anybody else an honorary sheriff. He's not an honorary sheriff in Cobb County. So why is he doing these things? Why is he saying these things? CNN goes on to say that, that his response to, um, to questions about, uh, about uh, campaign issues are nonsensical. Uh, somebody asked him, for example, I'm going to see if I can find it while we're talking, but I mean, somebody asked him about, uh, about COVID and his response was, um, that here it is. He says, Cain killed Abel. And that's a problem that we have. What we need to do is look into how we can stop these things. You know, you talked about doing a disinformation. What about getting a department that could look at young men, that's looking at young women, that's looking at their social media? What about that, huh? Fratricide? I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, John, I'm starting to feel like this guy might be unfit for office. (laughs) 
weird. <laughs> I mean, he'd be in company, I guess. Let, but. Me, let me add one other thing. This is this is an interview that he gave uh, yesterday, um, also about COVID. Uh, they asked what his position is on COVID and testing for COVID. He said, right now, you know what? I'm going to say something I probably shouldn't. Do you know right now I have something that can bring you into a building that would clean you from COVID as you walk through a dry mist? What? As you walk through the door, it'll kill any COVID on your body. And when you leave, it'll kill the COVID as you leave. This here product, they don't want me talking about it. They don't want to hear about it. This is embarrassing. This is embarrassing for everyone. And it's starting to make me feel sorry for Herschel Walker. Like yeah. maybe he shouldn't actually be out in, you know, no, out in public he, saying these things. He, he and needs like what you said um, during the break. This guy needs like assisted living or something. Yeah. He's he's clearly not in his right mind. He and Joe Biden can Joe re Biden. retire Earth. to a uh, an assisted living yeah. facility and swap wow. stories together in their golden years. Go for it. Hey, uh, speaking of sleazebags, Dan Snyder. Oh. Dan Snyder, most hated man in Washington, is not going to attend the uh, House Oversight and Reform Committee hearing on workplace abuses at the Washington Commanders. He was going to be a star witness, uh -huh. but his lawyers say they have due process concerns about him appearing there. Yeah, because he's guilty. Mm. Axios has the scoop on this and reminds us that the commanders and Snyder are facing allegations from some former employees, among them cheerleaders, of pervasive sexual harassment at the franchise. Yes. It's also been alleged that they illegal with illegally withheld refunds from ticket holders makes me almost as mad. Yes. Like you don't it's have enough thief. money. You don't want to refund these people a couple hundred dollars or whatever sleaze bags and also not giving the NFL the right share of ticket sales, which might be the financial wow. crime that actually brings them down. Cause I, you probably don't want to screw the NFL. You know, just to show you how things have changed for Dan Snyder, when, when he bought the team back in the day in the nineties, when it was good and when people it was good, liked it, they were winning Super Bowls. Yeah. Um, you know, there was like a, a 12 year waiting list for season tickets. Mm-hmm. Now you can go on StubHub. I've actually done this and you can get a ticket to uh, uh, what are they called now? Commanders. Commanders to a commander's game for five dollars. It's cheaper than seeing a movie. Yeah. If you can imagine such and a look, thing. And look, it's not so much that we need the team to win to be to support it, but you need to not see someone making the same stupid That's decisions right. over and over and misallocating yes. money and just, you know, keep he's wanting. He's just a bad human being. He's terrible. And the people who, yeah, he really is. He really, really is. He's like really high, un, probably unreasonably high on my list of uh, people that I personally loathe. Uh, so, yeah, so there's that. We won't get to see him testify. Also, John, we, we didn't mention this earlier this week, but you probably took a look at the New York Times publishing these photos from Guantanamo Bay. Yes. Yeah, it's fascinating. They I this I guess they got them through a FOIA request and yes. they got, you know, it's it's some of the first images that we have of how people were treated there, yeah. what their conditions look no, like, no what their gloves. food looked like. Yeah. Uh, so that's been, you know, it's yeah. it's after all these years, we're an audio medium, so I can't really describe <laughs> the pictures to you. But yeah, after 20 years, we are getting we are finally able to see what the first days of, uh, you know, the, the first transfers of prisoners in our war on terror looked like. Yes. Yeah. And it's they're pretty they're it's pretty grim. chilling. Yeah, I agree. And they really do. They they put the lie to some claims about how those prisoners were treated. So it's it's worth a look in the times there. I think that's it for us today. That John, we're going to have to get out of here. 
uh, I want to thank all of our guests. I want to thank our engineers as usual. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We will see you tomorrow. <laughs>